You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to Mark 3. I am not certain, but I don't think this is what it meant to prove you're a part of the frozen chosen. And yet here you are, frozen and chosen. Good to be with you. I want to begin by posing a question for us to think about. You don't have to answer this out loud. In fact, please don't. Uh, What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word unforgiven? Unforgiven, first thing that comes to mind. For some of you, it may be a strained relationship with a family member or a loved one, somebody who wronged you in some way. For others of you, it it may be yourself. You might be thinking of yourself. Statistically, a lot of people struggle with forgiving themselves for things that they did a year ago, five years ago, 25 years ago. For some of you more lighthearted individuals, it might be the 1992 American Western featuring Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman, and Gene Hackman known as Unforgiven. Anyone? You can be honest. It's fine. For me, uh, it's not 1992. It's, it's 1991. The power ballad by Metallica called The Unforgiven off the so-called Black Album. Anybody? I want you to know I took time to curate a picture from the proper era of Metallica, uh, by the way. That's how, that's how much I care about you. Um, the word unforgiven is a word that, that conjures a lot of ideas, a wide variety of ideas, uh, some serious, some not so serious. One thing is for certain... Unforgiveness is something that many people today struggle with, both inside and outside of the church. Uh, Barna released a survey not too long ago that revealed that more than 25% of practicing Christians harbor unforgiveness towards another individual. In fact, 23% of them said that they're not unwilling to forgive. They're incapable of it. They're unable to forgive. And so I think that brings up an interesting question. And that is this, what offenses are truly unforgivable? What offenses are truly unforgivable? I read an in-depth article this week in Psychology Today, a secular psychology journal, I might add, that absolutely floored me. The article was titled, Are Some Offenses Unforgivable? Question mark. And uh, they began by defining what forgiveness is. And I think for the most part, uh, it, it wasn't too far off from the Christian perspective. The author essentially argues that forgiveness means letting go of negative feelings towards another person and perhaps even being able to feel some sense of compassion towards them. Uh, she did go on to note that not all definitions of forgiveness assume the necessity of reconciliation. And to that end, I agree. Forgiveness and reconciliation, not the same thing. They're related, but they're not the same thing. But here's the part that absolutely floored me, and it has to do with that Barna statistic as well. The article concluded that what qualifies something as either forgivable or unforgivable is ultimately decided by the person issuing the forgiveness. She says, forgiveness is in the mind of the beholder. Forgiveness is in the mind of the beholder. In other words, what I think is forgivable might be unforgivable for you. And what you think is forgivable might be unforgivable for me. It's up to me to decide for me. It's up to you to decide for you. And and hopefully I don't have to tell you how problematic this is. 
This is, this is a problematic way of viewing forgiveness, and yet this is how most people operate. But we here at City on a Hill, we are people of the book, are we not? I'm not interested in deciding what is forgivable or what is unforgivable. And as much as I like you, I'm not interested in your opinion as well. I want to know what the Bible says about it. And as it turns out, there is one thing in the Bible that is unforgivable. The Bible has a lot to say about forgiveness and even the worst of sins. Murder, assault, genocide, some of the most detestable things that you can think of in the world, all of it finds forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ through repentance and belief in the gospel. Praise God. There is forgiveness for all sin except one. And as it happens, our text this morning deals with this so-called unforgivable sin or what Jesus refers to as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is an important topic. I can't tell you as a pastor how many times through the years I've had discussions with well-meaning Christians who were concerned that they may have at some point in the past unknowingly committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and were now outside of God's grace and forgiveness. Maybe some of you have wrestled with that as well. And so I want us to understand this morning from this text what this really means. What does Jesus mean when he says this? What is he talking about? Forgiveness is a central part of the gospel, the gospel message. And so when we come across something in the Bible that is called unforgivable, it sort of immediately grabs our attention, doesn't it? So let's jump into the text, figure out what's going on here. Verses 22 through 27 is where we're going to begin our time. It says this, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to, him, or said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Such an interesting exchange, isn't it? So let's set the stage for the text so we understand and can kind of imagine with clarity what's going on here. At this point, through Mark's gospel, we're in chapter 3, Jesus has already performed many miracles, many of which we've talked about in previous uh, messages. In addition to that... He's performed a number of exorcisms, which seems to be the thing that has gotten the most attention, the attention of the scribes. And notice that these are not just any ordinary scribes. These are, as verse 22 says, scribes who came down from Jerusalem. These are scribes sent from the capital. These are the headquarters scribes. In other words, Jesus' ministry was so concerning to the religious establishment at this point in his ministry that they're now sending delegates from Jerusalem to check things out. It's not enough to have local leaders look into this anymore. We need the big guns. We need the top dogs to come in and figure out what's going on with this Jesus guy. Now, Mark doesn't explicitly say this, but these guys were likely a part of a group known as the Sanhedrin. The Bible talks about them in other places. 
These are, you can think of them as a sort of Jewish supreme court. They're a conglomerate of Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law, tops of their class. They settle the biggest and most serious offenses in all of Israel. These are the scholars of the scholars. They know more than anyone. They are the final authority. In fact, history tells us that Sanhedrin would often send emissaries into cities where they suspected false teaching was happening. And what these emissaries would do is they would come in, they would investigate, they would listen to the false teacher to evaluate, is this guy really a false teacher or not? And then depending on whether he was a false teacher and whether he had gotten the crowds to follow him, they would then declare that city a seduced city. This is a historical uh, fact. This is, what, this is how they would practice, a seduced city. So this is probably what's happening here, right? Jesus' ministry had become so widespread and so controversial at this point that the Sanhedrin had to send delegates into the city, likely the city of Capernaum, by the way. Uh, last week, Jesus ends at a house where they're eating. This was likely Simon and Andrew's house in Capernaum. And they were there to determine whether or not Capernaum had become a seduced city under the teaching of Jesus. And notice the progression, last week to now. Remember, last week, his family, at the end of that text, in, in verse 21, were saying, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. Right? we got to get him home. He's, he's ruining our reputation. He has lost his mind. Notice this week, the scribes, they don't think he's crazy. Look what they say. He's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. They don't think he's crazy. They think he's demonic. They say he's, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Now, who is Beelzebul? You've probably heard it more commonly pronounced as Beelzebub. Right? Anyone? Yeah? And you're probably familiar with that name either from your in-depth analysis of ancient Ugaritic and Canaanite culture or more probably from the Queen song, Bohemian Rhapsody, right? So, yeah, Beelzebub. Actually, a funny story. I want to unpack this a little bit for you because there's some interesting history here. Beelzebub is first mentioned in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 1. In 2 Kings... After King Ahaziah falls, who is, by the way, a wicked king, falls from his upper chamber and is nearing death, rather than calling on the name of Yahweh, as he should have, he, in verse 2, it says, he tells his messengers, go, inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I should recover from this sickness. Baal, of course, is the chief deity worshipped by the Canaanites in the Old Testament. You see Baal a lot. Beelzebub is a title that was apparently given to him that roughly translates Lord of the Flies, which is incidentally the inspiration behind William Golding's classic Lord of the Flies. Probably read that at some point in your life. Uh, But here's the funny part. Beelzebub is actually a play on words. It's actually a play on words. The proper name would have been Beelzebul which is how it's written here in Mark. And and it roughly translates as Baal the Prince. But the Israelites worshiped Yahweh and they were very particular about mocking other false gods. And so they they coined this term Baalzebub so as to say, he's no Lord, maybe a Lord of the Flies, but that's about it. It's a joke, it's like a derogatory term, a mocking name, which I think is just incidentally kind of funny because that's the more popular name that's permeated our culture today. 
and it started as a joke. I, there's just something kind of hilarious about that. But notice in verse 23, Jesus doesn't even use the term Beelzebul. He just re refers to him as Satan. Jesus isn't playing any games, right? Beelzebul isn't a real deity. The Canaanite religion is a lie. It's all a facade for Satan. And so Jesus just goes straight to the heart of the issue. And I think there's, a, there's an important takeaway here that I, that I don't want you to miss. Although it's not the popular thing to say. It's not going to put me on TBN or, or Daystar. Every other God worshipped throughout human history that is not the triune God of Scripture is not only a false God, but a demonic spirit. You need to understand that. False gods are not hollow beings. When it comes to world religions, the God worshipped in these religions, they are not entirely without substance. So I do, just for what it's worth, I do believe the Canaanites worshipped, communed with, and served a being referred to as Beelzebul. I think that, that they probably saw things happen. That there was probably some interaction. There was probably some supernatural things going on. And, and they referred to this being as Beelzebul. I just don't think they were worshiping a figment of their imagination. I, I just also don't think it was a god. It was a demon. And this is not my opinion. Uh, scripture warns of this in, in several places. So Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17, straight up talks about the problem of idolatry in Israel and how when people were sacrificing to idols, they were actually sacrificing to demons. This is what Deuteronomy 32 teaches. Leviticus 17.7 says similar thing. They shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to demons. Or some of your translations may say goat demons. That's a whole different topic that would be really fun to unpack. We don't have time for it this morning. <laughs> what does Paul warn Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1? He says, the, ex the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Behind every false god is demonic power that lures and deceives people away from the truth. So about three years ago, we did a series on Wednesday night in here called Cults. Some of you were a part of that, came in and, and were part of the, the live audience. But we put it on YouTube, and, and it's been very interesting to me that of all of the things, the, the hundreds now of videos that are on our church's YouTube page, those videos have gotten more traction than anything else probably combined at this point. Particularly the Jehovah's Witness, the Way International, and the Rosicrucian Order. Those three garnered a lot of attention. Uh, I have since doing that class... I have received, I'm not exaggerating, somewhere probably around 50 to 75 emails from people. Uh, some from people still in these cults that were mad that I was saying what I was saying, which by the way, most of what I was saying was just reading their texts. Like this is what they're putting in print for people to read. This is what it says. I'm not even really giving my opinion on it. Most of the emails have come from people who have left these groups and have since come to faith in Jesus Christ and were thanking me for exposing what these cult groups were doing, and they are totally convinced at this point that those groups are being blinded and held captive by Satan himself. It is crystal clear to them, having come out of it now, looking back, that was satanic. Not my words, their words, although I believe them. And if you've ever had to uh, have a discussion with someone in a cult group or in another world religion that is very committed to that 
world religion or cult group, and, and you engage in discussion with them concerning the identity of Jesus as God the Son, or, or the gospel at large, or about the Bible, you figure out really quickly that you are not simply at an impasse in disagreeing over particulars. That there is some kind of spiritual captivity that has happened because the kind of anger and rage that comes out of those discussions almost instantaneously is very tangible. You, you, you can see it almost immediately. Jesus here in Mark 3 is not playing any games. This isn't a Canaanite god. This isn't one of the many deities of the ancient Near East. Beelzebul is a mask for Satan himself, and Jesus calls it out. Notice his response in verse 23. He says, and, and he called them to him, and he said to them in parables. And then he gives two parables back to back, verses 24 and 25. They are very, very similar. They accomplish the same thing. Verse 24, the first parable, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. He goes on and says the second one in verse 25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Two different parables that accomplish the same exact thing. The first one deals with the kingdom, second one deals with the house. Both of them point to the reality that if a kingdom or a house is divided within itself, it will self-destruct. And then he makes his application, verse 26. He says, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. In other words, if Satan really has given me power to cast out demons, he is doing so to his own detriment and will soon be destroyed, which makes no sense. Why would Satan give me power to destroy him and his kingdom? It would be self-defeating. Jesus here, I think it's very fascinating. He's not appealing to theology. He's not appealing to the Bible or scripture. He's just appealing to logic. He's like, this is a dumb argument, guys. Like, surely you can do better than this. This makes no sense whatsoever. And then he gives another parable of sorts in verse 27. He didn't call it a parable, but it's more or less what it is. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed, he may plunder his goods. Can we just agree? What a strange thing to say. <laughs> what in the world does Jesus mean by this? Let's break down the parts. The strong man in this parable is Satan. Satan is the strong man. The strong man's house is Satan's domain, his dominion. The goods being plundered are people created in God's image. Every time someone is possessed by a demon, they become a part of Satan's dominion. He has control over them. He has authority over them. So the goods being plundered from Satan's house are people from whom Jesus had exercised demons. Every time Jesus cast out a demon, he is reclaiming that which was taken by the strong man, Satan. His point is this, that for as strong as Satan is, Jesus is stronger. He, he's not just telling you that, he has proven that every time he binds the strong man, enters his home, and plunders his goods. There's nothing Satan can do about it. <clears throat> as strong as Satan is, Jesus is more powerful. How many of you have ever heard of Michael Spinks, the Spinks Jinx, heavyweight champion of the world in boxing from 1983 to 1988, held the title for five years straight, dominant boxer, 
a bully in the ring, powerful, unstoppable. He began his career in the middleweight category, and as an amateur, he even fought for the United States in the 1976 Montreal Olympics, where he earned a gold. Dominant fighter, amazing. As a pro, had an even more impressive career. He, he actually uh, won in four different weight classes. Began as a middleweight, moved to super middleweight, and then to light heavyweight, and then eventually landed in the heavyweight category. 1985, he beat Larry Holmes, who at the time had a record of 48 and 0. He was going for uh, Rocky Marciano's legendary 49 and 0 record. But Spinks was too strong, couldn't handle it. Spinks beat him. A year later, they had a rematch. Spinks won again. 1987, he fought a couple of times. He beat everyone he faced. He earned an impressive 31-0 record. This is just not a guy you challenge, right? And then in 1988, he was up again to defend his title for the heavyweight champion of the world. Heavily favored. Prime of his life. Strong as ever. And in the first 91 seconds of the first round, a 22-year-old kid shocked the world and retired Michael Spinks from boxing. His name was Mike Tyson. Tyson unleashed devastating display of speed and power, knocking Spinks down for the first time in 60 seconds and for a second and final time in 91 seconds. Spinks was strong. He's not the guy you mess with. And suddenly a new guy came on the scene and was by all counts immeasurably stronger. This is Jesus' point. Satan is powerful. Satan is very strong. He's not a guy you mess with. He's not a guy you challenge. He's not a guy you try to enter his house and take his goods from him. The only way you would ever be crazy enough to think about doing something like that is that you are significantly stronger than him and you can bind him up before you do so. And Jesus is that. And that brings us to the last portion of the text where we find this so-called unforgivable sin. That sort of sets the context up. Look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, truly, amen, same word in Greek, amen, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, praise God for that, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The question on the table for us this morning is this, what Does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? There are a lot of suggestions that have been made about this, but I think the simplest answer is actually found right in front of us in the text. Verse 30 tells us very clearly, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They're talking about Jesus. That's the problem. That's the issue. This is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Let me just spell it out clearly for you. It is the act of of ascribing to Satan and his demons the work of the Holy Spirit manifested in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The miracles, the exorcisms that Jesus performed, these are clear manifestations of the Holy Spirit. These are things that only God can do. If you've been reading Mark up to this point, you have seen Jesus do things that only God can do. Only God can touch a leper and not only not contract leprosy, but heal him totally. Only God can know the thoughts and the intentions of man before he speaks them audibly. Only God can forgive sin. Remember chapter 2 when Jesus heals the paralytic man and he says, your sins are forgiven? 
And they're like, well, you can't do that, Jesus. Only God can do that. And Jesus is like, connect the dots. <laughs> Jesus is God. That's the whole point. This is, why, this is why in John 14, 8 and 9, the disciples are like, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And he's like, you idiots. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It would be utterly nonsensical to see Jesus do any of these things and think he could be anyone other than God. And Jesus' point here in Mark 3 is it would be utterly blasphemous to see him do this and go, this must be satanic power. Beyond that, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit contains within it an idea of continual behavior or habitual blaspheming. It's not, in other words, a one-time event. It's something that continues over the course of one's life. It's not something that happens once and you're like, oops, now I'm outside of forgiveness. Like, that's not how it works. There's a, a continuity that takes place, habitual behavior. Uh, the, the rejection of the Holy Spirit concerning who Jesus is for the scope of one's life. So in verse 30, it says, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. You, this is in the imperfect tense in Greek. Uh, you could translate this as, they kept on saying he has an unclean spirit. They were saying over and over and over and over and over again, he has an unclean spirit. This is what makes this unforgivable. When you continually reject the witness of the Holy Spirit, you are truly without hope because there's no other way to Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit in John 16, 7 and 8? He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, this is part of the ministry of the Spirit right here. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is part of the role of the third person of the Trinity, to convict people of their sin and bear witness about the identity of who Jesus is. To point to, illuminate, make clear your need for a savior. The spirit is who makes our sin known to us and then reveals Jesus' identity to us as well. Without the witness of the spirit then, we cannot know Jesus and we will not need repentance or see the need for it. So listen, when the spirit comes to convict us of our sin and make the identity of Jesus known to us, and we not only reject that witness, but attribute it to demonic power, there's no left, there's nothing, there's nowhere left to go. There's no hope. Jesus is the only way. If you reject the only witness concerning your sin and the need for Jesus, you're left with nothing. There's nothing else there. There's no solution for the problem of sin. There's no path to the Father. It's a sin that's unforgivable because it removes the only possibility of forgiveness that there is. This is what John refers to, by the way, in 1 John 5, 16. We talked about this last year in our verse-by-verse -verse study through 1 John. Remember, John talked about there is a sin that does not lead to death, and you should pray for them who commit them, and there is a sin that leads to death, and you don't even need to pray for them which is in and of itself a very troubling text. If you want to know what I had to say about that, then go back and listen to the sermon. I'm not doing it again here. John says, essentially, yeah, there's a sin that leads to death. Why does it lead to death? Because there was never repentance. There was, it was never dealt with. 
If there's never repentance, there's never forgiveness. If there's never forgiveness, there's no chance at eternal life. There's only condemnation and death. Thus, it's a sin that leads to death. The same concept is happening here in Mark 3. The sin that is unforgivable is the kind that totally rejects the witness of Jesus concerning your sin and his identity over and over and over again throughout your life until the day you die. There will never be forgiveness because there will never be repentance and belief. There will never be repentance and belief without the witness of the Spirit. If you reject him over and over again, there's nothing left. You're without hope. So this brings us back to this question that we started with in the very beginning. What offenses are truly unforgivable? This is it. It's not murder. It's not murder. Murder is horrible, egregious. In the kingdom of God, murderers are forgiven when the Spirit convicts them of their sin and makes the gospel known to them. They're forgiven. Sometimes, actually, wildly, they become apostles. See Paul as an example. It's not any of the most egregious sins that you can imagine, and you can probably imagine some pretty bad ones. None of those are unforgivable in God's economy according to the scripture. Not because they aren't bad, but because God is just that good. His grace is able to cover even the worst of the sins you can imagine. His grace is sufficient for us. There's only one unforgivable sin. It is the sin that so defiantly rejects the witness and works of the Holy Spirit of God concerning sin and salvation, so much so that you will be willing to attribute any supernatural happenings to Satan before you give God credit. When that happens repeatedly over the course of your life, there's no other hope. So then here's what that means. Let me give you a couple practical applications. First, it means that if you are a Christian covered by the blood of Jesus, born again, you cannot be guilty of this sin. Hear me when I say that. You cannot be guilty of the sin. Why? Pastor Derek, I mean, I don't know. I've done some pretty bad things in my past. Maybe I uttered the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit one time in my life. No, remember, it's not a one-time event. If you're a believer in Christ, in order to become a Christian, you must receive the witness of the Spirit concerning your sin and the identity of Jesus. Because in order to be a Christian, you must repent of your sin and believe the gospel. The only way you can repent of your sin is if you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. The only way you can believe the gospel is if the Holy Spirit has made Jesus known to you. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can only do that with the ministry of the Spirit active in your life. You can't do this on your own power. You cannot repent of your own sin and believe God in your own strength. As great as you may think you are, as great as I think you are, you can't do this without the Spirit. So it's impossible to commit the unforgivable sin if you're already a believer in Jesus. The two are polar opposites. They don't exist together. It's either one or the other. You cannot come to Christ and be guilty of this. So that's the first application. Rest easy in that. If you know Jesus and you know you've been born again, you may have a lot of fish to fry in your life concerning your sin, but this isn't one of them. Here's another application. It's a hard application that I want to leave you with this morning to think about on this beautiful morning that God has given us. 
If the only unforgivable sin is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that means that everything else, all of the other sins, as bad as they may be, as hurt by them as you may be, as ugly and heinous as they may be, they are forgivable. So understand this, dear brother or sister in the Lord. When you call them unforgivable, you're speaking over God and his word. When, when we come to something that has happened and say, there's no way I can forgive this, what I am essentially saying is God was wrong when he said that this was forgivable. He went too easy on you. Now, I am not suggesting that you just forget that things happen or brush them off or minimize them or don't have boundaries around people or, or think that you need to be reconciled to every single person who's ever harmed you. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying you can forgive because you've been forgiven. In fact, there's a truth here. My forgiveness to others should be as boundless as God's forgiveness to me. Right? Now, okay, so here's what that means then. Let me ask you a question in response to that. What would your relationship with Jesus look like if he only forgave you to the extent that you forgive others? Would you be bursting in joy with the forgiveness that you receive or would you be going to pick up your phone and make some, make some strides to forgive? This is why Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as what? As we forgive others. That's not a theological reality that somehow God's forgiveness is limited by my works. The point is for you as you pray to be held accountable to the kind of forgiveness you're giving. Because if I am praying and asking God, forgive me only to the extent that I've forgiven others, I better be forgiving others to the fullest extent. Amen. There's accountability there, right? Do not call what is forgivable unforgivable. Don't step over God's word on this. And I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to make his applications in your heart where necessary. He has the power to do that. I don't. And so pray over that. Wrestle with that. And where necessary, forgive. Let's pray. Lord, how we love you. We confess that we rejoice and the ministry of the Spirit has convicted us of our sin and made Jesus known to us in a way that has led to eternal life and forgiveness. We, we rejoice in that. And we pray, God, that, that the Spirit would use us, broken vessels, to, to be witnesses to the gospel in a way that he is able to use for the benefit of others as well. Would you, God, convict us in, in places where perhaps we've been unforgiving, Help us wrestle through that. Help us, help us connect with the depths of how bad we were when you forgave us to motivate us to then forgive others even as bad as they have been towards us. Ultimately, God, uh, we thank you for the rest that we find in knowing that as your word says, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not height nor depth. Nothing. Nothing separates us from you. And, and we, we rest in that. We rest in knowing that, that our joy 
that, that our forgiveness, that our eternal life is a work of yours, not ours. And so we receive that. Would you help us receive your spirit's correction towards us where we have perhaps not been as forgiving as we should? We love you. We thank you for your word upon which we stand, a light in darkness that guides our path. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.